1: Welcome to the Billboard Chartbeat Podcast. Gary Trust here, Billboard's co-director of charts. And hey, guys. It's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. So uh, we told you about this last week. Uh, we're doing something different this week. Normally every week we uh, look at the current Billboard Hot 100, top 10, talk about all that. But uh, due to some vacation time, Trevor, I suppose being in uh, England as this is
2: Not that Gary's going to air my to, business. Oh, like – I'll just be away, but yes, if you happen to be in England and an avid listener of the Chart Beat Podcast, uh, please find me. in Trevor's World Tour. To let me fans. know. Call yeah, over. truly. I'll. We'll see how many stamps we come back with. So because of
1: that, uh, getting ahead, so we're taping these ahead of time, but flashing back to uh, the Billboard Hot 100 uh, this week in 1997, and then next week, uh, we'll go back to 2007. So 20 years and 10 years ago, looking at the top 40 songs. ...on the Hot 100, 20 and 10 years ago. All right, so 20 years back, uh, 1997. uh, We're also going to chat with one of the artists on the chart that week. A huge hit that year. Paula Cole broke through with Where Have All the Cowboys Gone. We're going to talk to her. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to the number one song this week, 20 years ago. Fairly historic one, too. And it incorporated some elements that we still see in hits today. So uh, we'll count down from number 40 to number one, the Billboard Hot 100, this week, 20 years ago. All right, numbers 40 to 36 on the Hot 100 this week. 20 years ago, I started with Trisha Yearwood, How Do I Live. We're going to hear another version of that song coming up uh, in the countdown. Uh, number 39, Blessed Union of Souls, I Want to Be There. Number 38, Joe, Don't Want to Be a Player. Did I say that right? Was a player or was a player? Well, how's it spelled, Gary? It's spelled player, E-R. So there you go. Uh, smoking me out, number 37,
2: Warren G, featuring
1: Ronald Isley.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, the Isley Brothers in particular, big, big, big sample based in hip-hop. I mean, I think there are a few studies out there that say they may be, may be along with James Brown, like the most sampled act. I mean, there's so many songs, I mean, even R&B songs in particular, that I think people don't even know that they're based off Isley Brothers songs.
1: Yeah, and Ronald Isley had a few hits around that time, 96, 97, with R. Kelly, Keith Sweat, as well as Warren G. So this is actually just one of those songs. Yeah. And at number 36, two hits in one for Tony Braxton, I Don't Want To, and the B-side, because at the time, uh, singles could chart as A and B-sides. When Physical Yeah, we're going back singles. to physical singles at this point. Now, I Don't Want To was the A-side, and I Love Me Some Him was the B-side. They charted together. Got to number 19, was down to number
2: 36 this week. Sound like those? Those just sound like Tony Braxton songs, like "I Love Me Some Him." That, that just sounds very '90s Tony Braxton.
1: And she had so many hits that this this one's maybe a little obscure, given how many hits she had
2: in the '90s. Yeah, I mean, this would have been the Secrets album. So this is in the same vein as "You're Making Me High" from "Waiting to Exhale." It's called "Let It Flow." That's also at the same time, and of course, "Unbreak My Heart." Um, you know the. Into '96, obviously being a humongous ballad, um, so yeah, yeah, in that same era. All right, talking about huge R&B pop ballads.
1: Here's one at number thirty-five.
3: There's nothing to- Little Kim, little mm. Kim, bring it to me now. I know what dude name want to do, push a cute Had a wow crew on Flatbush and Avenue U Had a weed spot, used to pump African black. He used to seal his bag, so his work was with
0: I'll see you when you see me
2: 35 we just heard a sample of I believe I can fly. Robert Kelly bringing it home from the Space Jam soundtrack. Uh, if you were a kid at this time, trust me, and I guess, I guess even for even older for people the adults, like me, yeah, the Gen Xers like Gary at the time. Um, of course, Michael Jordan. You know, the biggest thing, probably biggest celebrity, probably in right. you know pop culture at the moment. Yeah, I
1: should actually talking '97. That was uh, still in the middle of uh, the, the second run of three uh, titles
2: for the Bulls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MJ had come back from his little baseball stint. Um, Obviously, a time to do a movie as well, and the soundtrack huge for R. Kelly. Always kind of weird, pers- personal kind of anecdote. They used to sing this song in church a lot. And it's so weird because I think for a lot of kids, that was their first introduction to R. Kelly. And so when you look at like R. Kelly's back catalog of like all the things that he'd already done at the time, and I mean, you got like you're obviously bump and grind, and your right. body's calling, and it's like, oh, this is not like what I expected Robert Kelly's, you know, whole body of work to be like. Trying to find a way to get R. Kelly in church, make it up, spice it up a little bit. Perfect song, though, for for that setting. Yeah, I mean, obviously very uplifting, very, you know, um, inspirational. So good for Robert. All right, uh, coming in at number 34, right above R. Kelly, we got Your Woman by Whitetown.
1: Yeah, there were so many uh, uh, sort of one-hit-wonder uh, type alternative uh, acts in the late uh, 90s. Uh, we'll hear from from uh, at least one more uh, coming up, but a really quirky song, really. It's uh, a lot of different sounds, kind of kind of dancey, kind of
2: pop, uh, just, just really what Alternative was at the time. All right, number 33, we actually had a debut this week. Uh, so the song debuted number 33, Not Tonight from... Nothing to lose, so we got another soundtrack going on as well. The all-woman hip-hop collective of Little Kim, Debrat, Left Eye, Missy Elliott, and Angie Martinez. So long before Khaled got the crew together on "I'm the One," the ladies were holding it down.
1: Oh, I like the one at number thirty-two we heard.
2: Yeah, 1997. I mean, this is twenty years basically after Saturday Night Fever, and you thought that the you know you thought that the BGS in there. White jumpsuits died with the movement, but well, yeah, they weren't they, they
1: weren't wearing the the white jumpsuits at that point.
2: Probably better for their sake than anyone else's.
1: Yeah, and the song was certainly it wasn't a disco uh, song at all. It was a, a much more of an updated sound. Uh, turned out to be their last top forty Hot 100 hit 20 years ago this week, uh, but also uh, 50 years ago now, 1967, that they had their first top forty hit. So at the time they were celebrating 30 years.
2: Great song, really good uh, pop song. I mean, the Bee Gees were chock full of. Them. I mean, obviously their own stuff. They wrote, you know, Isles in the Stream and some other songs. Right. Pop hit makers all around. Um, All right, moving up to number 31. We heard uh, See You When You Get There from Once Again, Nothing to Lose. So Nothing to Lose was the soundtrack of the week, apparently. Right. That's uh, (laughs) It's almost like the most, like, 90s thing you can say. It's Coolio featuring 40 Thieves. Um, So Coolio actually by this point had already had Gangsta's Paradise as a huge song. So um, not too far removed from that, just about – Almost two years, um, but Coolio again making the move. Fun fact: It was also the greatest gainer in sales that week. So kids were going out to their local Best Buys in Circuit City and you know snatching up that Coolio single. Can you say anything more '90s than that? I'm just telling. I'm asking. I'm just asking.
0: <laughs> you lied to me. You said you're not- The Pony dad It's
3: my first ride Biggie, 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 can't you see? Sometimes your words just hypnotize me And I just love your fleshy ways I guess that's why they're broken You're so mean Biggie, 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 uh-huh. can't you see? Sometimes your words just hypnotize me
1: Moving on on the Hot 100, this week we're flashing back 20 years, the top 40 hits on the Billboard Hot 100. This week, uh, July 12th, 1997, that chart was dated. Number 30, Casey and JoJo with You Bring Me Up. That was before uh, All My Life would be the next year. It'd be a huge number one hit for them.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, people have gotten to know them a little bit, obviously, through their work with Jodeci at the time. But yeah, they start to break out. Uh, interesting song at number 29, it's Butterfly
1: Kisses by the Raybon Brothers. The, the main hit version was by Bob Carlisle but it wasn't uh, available as a commercial single. So it was only an airplane hit. It couldn't chart. On the Hot 100 rules at the time, you had to be a single you could buy in stores. So that wasn't. So that didn't chart. So there's a country cover because the song was so big. So that uh, came out as a commercial single, hit the top
2: 40. Number uh, 28, former number one hit. Biggie, of course, you know, gunned down earlier that year. So really, you know, the tribute's starting to pour out. Everybody, of course, it's really it really is the summer that... Bad Boy Records in general just kind of ruled these charts. Obviously, one of Big's best songs, you know? I mean, still to this day, you can hear it just, I mean, anywhere. Every playlist, whether it's, I mean, back even school was a school dance, you can just hear it on the bus. People just, you know, rudely blaring it on the subway or whatever. But you can't get too mad because it's a good song. So, yeah, Big making his first mention on these charts uh, won't be his last.
1: All right. Number 27. Uh, we heard uh, another version of the song back at number 40. It was also number 27 by Leanne Rhymes. So I think a lot of people know the story that there were uh, dueling How Do I Lives on the chart in 1997, one by Trisha Yearwood, one by Leanne Rimes. And uh, Trisha Yearwoods was the version that made it into the movie Con Air. Leanne Rimes, she was uh, not yet 15 at the time. So a lot of thinking was that she was too young to sing a song like this. So it didn't make it into the movie. But her version still came out as a single, and uh, even though it didn't make the movie, it wound up being uh, the much bigger hit on the Hot 100. Uh, Trisha Yearwood's version would get to number 23, Leanne Rimes would get to number two, and uh, how's this for, for ultimately winning? It's the most successful song ever by woman on the Hot 100. When we uh, recap the greatest of all time uh, last time, it was number four overall top charting song ever by female artist. How do I live,
2: Leanne Rimes? They're saying also that potentially uh, Leanne's version was not quite country enough, a little too a little a little too poppy. Some people are saying also very weird how at the Grammy Awards the next year, Leanne Rhymes sings the song immediately before they give out the Grammy for country vocal performance. They're both nominated, right? And Trisha Yearwood wins.
1: And uh, number twenty six, All for You, is actually a debut from uh, Sister Hazel, a Florida band. Uh, you know that song uh, at the time, Hootie and the Blowfish, had been so big for a couple of years, and you started to see other songs come out that had that same kind of you know, southern rock pop feel to them. And this song wound up being a huge hit, but it, I think in some ways it kind of owed a little bit to the influence of Hootie, who had been so big at that point. And Janet Jackson would not remake it uh, four years later. Her All For You, totally different song. A,
2: a, a Janet Jackson, I guess you could really say it's a Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis original.
0: showin' on the hot track, melt like it's hot wax, put it out, all
4: the stores, bet you can shop that.
0: I often dream of a far-off place, where our heroes are welcome, and we'll be waiting for. This goes out to all the women in the world,
4: especially
0: her, you know it don't even matter your age,
1: don't even.
2: All right, keep it on climbing here on the Hot 100, looking back at 1997. This week, we are up to 25. It is another bad boy record smash. Puff Daddy's Can't Nobody Hold Me Down uh, featuring Mace. The song had been number one already earlier that year. Again, I mean, this is the season of the bad boy takeover um, sliding down a little bit. I mean, you know, it had been number 20 last week, dropping 25. But again, I mean, and really... You know, importantly, one of Puff Daddy's first hits on his own. He'd obviously been producing for, you know, Notorious B.I.G., for Lil' Kim, for Mary J. Blige, even. But he steps out with a No Way Out album and his own song and gets to number one.
1: Just like how uh, 1997 appropriate we're being by calling him Puff Daddy. That's what he was billed as on the chart at the time.
2: That was That's who he was. Sean Combs had only one nickname at the time instead of the 16 he apparently goes by now.
1: And the song uh, reworks... Uh, Break My Stride by Matthew Wilder and not the only song in the top 40 this week in 1997 by then named Puff Daddy that reworked a big 80s hit.
2: Uh, Number 24 this week also a very 90s kind of trend. The song is Go the Distance from the film Hercules as performed by Michael Bolton. I mean, again, another 90s sort of takeover is the Disney renaissance that we saw really starting with Little Mermaid back in the 80s but through Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Pocahontas. Now we're at Hercules. Michael Bolton is taking on the song, um, turning it into another top 40 hit. I mean, like we saw saw all those films. I mean, we saw with Beauty and the Beast. We saw Celine and Peebo take it to the top 10. A Whole New World, Peebo Bryson, Regina Bell got a number one out of that. Um, with Lion King, Elton John, you know, taking some of those songs from the soundtrack and reworking them for for the pop radio version. Uh, Vanessa Williams right. is on Pocahontas doing Colors of the Wind. Now it's Michael Bolton's turn. Two years later, Phil Collins will also show up when he does the Tarzan soundtrack. So such a trademark of the 90s to have these these huge artists take these songs from these musicals basically win the Oscar every year as well. So You're gonna give all the love thing.
1: to Disney though, and not Michael Bolton? That was all Disney. There was nothing Michael Bolton about that.
2: Well, it, I mean it's but it was the Disney machine that made it work, you know. I mean that's that you gotta give, you know, that's the problem is Michael Bolton, of course, gets the credit, but Alan Menken, Tim Rice, all those guys who are down there in the trenches doing the work that nobody shouts out.
1: Well, you just—that's you who needs the right. love. But you just—you didn't grow up with Michael Bolton being uh, on radio uh, throughout uh, the early part of the '90s. So this was actually his last uh, last Hot 100 hit of the '90s. He had so many hits before then. He's had one more since in, in 2011. Featured on the Lonely Islands, Jack Sparrow. See uh-huh. time he's been back on the chart. Yeah. Oh.
2: Wow. Wow. Kind of
1: parroting his his yeah. uh, sound.
2: Yo, that I mean, that dramatic vocal is is top notch. Truly, number twenty three, which is the Dip by Freak Nasty. Guys, we're gonna have to do a video series soon. We teach Gary to dip. So if you want to check that out, please look forward. In the meantime, we'll give Gary a break. Because uh, he did a lot of heavy lifting on this next one, number twenty two this week on the Hot 100, 1997. Where have all the cowboys gone? Paula Cole, who is going to be our special insider interview this week on the Chart Beat Podcast? Paula to talk about obviously the song making its way up the chart that year, and really, um, you know, one of those interesting kind of eras. Obviously, talking about Bad Boy taking over and all that kind of thing, but. The singer-songwriter was a huge presence in 97.
1: uh, Yeah, Paula Cole, number 22. Uh, Male song in that same vein, though, of at least uh, the uh, adult pop at the time. Duncan Sheik, number 21, Barely Breathing.
2: Yeah, who also will go on in the next decade to... Be uh, a huge uh, contributor to Spring Awakening on Broadway,
1: right? But uh, Paula Cole, she's our guest as our industry insider interview, and uh, we're going to bring in our intern as well here in the charts department, Kristen Corpus, mm-hmm. making her Billboard Sharpie podcast debut because right. uh, Kristen knows uh, Paula pretty well having taken a class with her at uh, Berklee uh, College of Music in Boston. So uh, Paula, after having these hits in the 90s, she's gone on uh, to still uh, do music. She has a new album coming out. We'll talk about that. But uh, she she loves teaching uh, younger uh, musicians coming up at Berkeley, And she's from Rockport, Massachusetts, so Berkeley's in Boston uh, nearby. So uh, we'll get into all that, and we'll find out the story behind Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, her other huge hit. The Dawson's Creek theme, maybe uh, people uh, know it now. I don't want to wait. So Paula Cole, our guest here on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast.
4: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Paula Cole, thank you so much for joining us on the Billboard Sharpie podcast.
4: Hi, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yeah uh, Trevor's here, I'm here. And Kristen Corpus. Billboard intern extraordinaire is here as well. And uh, Kristen, really interesting uh, tie-in here. You took a class with Paula Cole at Berkeley in Boston.
3: I did. She teaches uh, vocal perspectives on songwriting. So technically it's a class within the vocal department, but it's sort of, she calls it writing out your life. And she gives us prompts. She gave us prompts every week that we had to respond to, write a song every week. It was extremely challenging just because she wanted full-blown, completely... Uh, finished, polished songs every week that we had to perform in front of the class. Um, and it was it was a very interesting learning experience for me, I think, she, because she wrote, gave us the prompts that were very challenging. Mm.
1: So you're a tough professor, Paula. It sounds like. <laughs> it-
4: it's like parenting. I'm firm, but I'm loving.
2: <laughs> okay, so um, just to cl- so like vocal perspectives on so-, so that that's like obviously writing from a vocalist point of view. Or... Yeah,
3: I think she well, Paula can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I the way I interpreted the class was sort of um, you take people who are singers primarily, and sort of she forced us to self accompany, not forced, but <laughs> she she encouraged us to self accompany and um, and to write from a very honest. Place. I think her, her frame of mind for the class was to make sure that people who are singers are not just singers, that they're able to tell their stories in an honest, authentic way. And she gave us prompts that challenged the way we thought that, you know, we had to explore various parts of our identity in order to create songs that felt real. Um, and there were a lot of people in the class who had never written songs before, and then there were also people who were very seasoned songwriters, so I think it was just sort of feeding off of the energy of the people in the room and sort of finding a way to be honest with people that you probably didn't know, and then also creating stuff that you could use not just for the class but for your repertoire as well, for your own original performances.
1: Do you like uh, teaching, Paula? It's a whole different side of, of artistry and not uh, just a writing It's a very yourself. different
3: thing, yep. but basically uh,
4: the way I see it is I'm – I'm hopefully coming into contact with these millennials and inspiring them to become artists. Some of them may not take that path, but I feel like that's why I'm there. And I'll shine my light and hopefully they'll shine their light and they can learn from me that being an artist is its a big life choice and it encompasses many skill sets a lot of it is emotional intelligence, like interpersonal and intrapersonal intelligence, knowing myself and, and being able to communicate with others. But it's also entrepreneurship. It's being a good hang in the van. It's uh, having the courage to be an honest autobiographical writer. Um, it's knowing some production and uh, being literate, like looking for inspiration beyond the frequent junk food that is top 40 right and looking for inspiration like David Bowie used to read Russian authors in the tube but even when he admittedly didn't understand them as a young man but he was searching for meaning searching for self-expansion and it all comes into the artistry so being an artist that's what i'm hoping to help him find and it's a it's a good gig at Berkeley because they let me be free when I need to be free and and I can be involved with the younger generation. It's made me a better musician too.
1: How'd that uh, come about, Paul? I think you you've been there what since 2013, right?
4: Yes. Uh, well, they had offered me uh, a job before, but it just the timing wasn't right. Um I went to Berkeley. I went as a jazz singer <laughs> and uh, emerged from there realizing that I wasn't going to be a jazz singer, even though I had been offered a, a record deal from a jazz label while I was still at Berkeley, because I didn't wanna sing the realities written by Rogers and Hart and Rogers and Hammerstein anymore. I wanted to write my own, sing sorry, sing my own realities, And there was some kind of healing and discovery in that. So I started on my path of writing my own songs. And they've been this funky blend of many influences, for many years, and I, honestly, I don't feel understood because my influences are pretty ranging, starting with jazz, really. Yeah. So 30 years later, I'm I'm releasing my, my first jazz album this August, and it's called Ballads. So it's a nod to Billie Holiday and Coltrane, and also classic American writers from the 1930s to 60s. So there's some Americana woven in there, too, because I feel like genres are often limiting. So I'm mixing up genres and showing that side of myself. But yeah, I'm, I'm many things and it's hard to compartmentalize. I worship at the altar of music.
1: Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, August 11th is when uh, the, yeah, the new album Ballads comes out. One more question for you, uh, Kristen. Did you get a good grade in the class?
3: I did, <laughs> but Paula. I think yeah. as long as she sees that you're you're putting in the effort, I think she's a pretty yeah. lenient grade.
4: <laughs> oh yeah, to me, it's like you, you're not there to be amazing. You're there to learn and be humble and show up.
3: Being in her class made me a more honest writer. I will have to say.
1: You mentioned uh, you mentioned the the junk food on top 40 radio a moment ago Paula. <laughs> oh, it's going to be an awkward segue here because uh, we're flashing back 20 years ago 1997 I, you were the, uh, the the healthy choice uh, for for a while
4: i'm not making any declarations about that but I, I i mean i guess i've i have strove to to make lasting music you know and it was popular then and and that was an interesting journey um yeah like all of a sudden my star rose very quickly and My songs were on the radio, and that was a fantastic ride. It was also awkward for this introvert, right, to be thrust into the spotlight. (laughs) So I I ended up taking time away from the music business, but yeah, I, I was there, 1997,
1: what let's talk specifically about where have all the cowboys gone. Uh, you wrote it yourself. Uh, what was the inspiration? How did it come about? Certainly in a, in a typical uh, pop hit, although with that catchy chorus and, and uh, so many hooks in the song, we can see why it became a, a hit. But how did the song come about?
4: Yeah. I mean, there's real craft to honing a perfect gem of a pop tune. There's, there's ability in that that I, I revere. And I remember the idea came to me. I was listening to a lot of XTC. If, do you guys know who I'm talking about? I They're do. They're a band do, out of do England. You,
2: do you two um, younger people remember this? <laughs> I don't think I do. I'm, I'm trying, but XTC. nothing's coming. <laughs> I remember Punk. And
4: Palm. produced by Hugh Padgham. They're British. They were a British band, like 80s. And really interesting stories and funny. Rye, W R Y Rye. You know, they <laughs> they were smart and funny and telling stories. And I I had this aha moment thinking there are not a lot of songs with humor written by women for women. And I wanted to try that. And also when I ended up, so I wrote this. Where have all the cowboys gone? It came spilling out onto the page from the pen. You know, it's part of the unconscious vernacular started by Pete Seeger with Where Have All the Flowers Gone, and it kind of refreshed that, and it was a look at gender roles, and it was this humorous but melancholy twist of wordplay and, and storytelling, uh, wildly misinterpreted by certain people, and that's all right, right? We're all in this together, but of course it was feminist, of course it was ironic, and I wrote it originally with a Roomba feel, <laughs> and nobody paid any attention to it because it was kind of this weird little tune. But as a couple of years rolled by, I thought, that's a good tune, and I brought it out of the closet of my song catalog and uh, re it with like a Ringo Starr kind of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise feel. I don't know if you have listened to that album, but at the end of the album, Paul says, one, two, three, four, five and then Ringo was playing so I sampled Ringo's uh, drums there and re-demoed the song over Ringo. Of course that's not in the version now because we couldn't do that. <laughs> and I added the catchy background vocals and the bridge and then everybody went nuts for the tune
3: right.
4: and I, when I recorded it for real, I didn't want bass on it. I, I wanted it to sound full on its own without bass. It, Would have been wearing two heavy shoes with with bass, and I loved the way when doves cry sounded by Prince without bass. And so I guess really I was influenced by XTC, Pete Seeger, Prince, and Gloria Steinem.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly uh, you're you're proving about not being uh, put into into one box.
4: I don't know. (laughs) Brian, thanks. Were you surprised
1: that it was a hit? I mean, obviously it was so catchy, but uh, you know, a lot of dance music at that time in 1997, it was it was just more of an adult uh, theme and as you said the storytelling angle to it. What was your reaction when it started becoming such a big hit?
4: It was pretty amazing to be walking down a New York City street and hearing it from somebody's Walkman as I passed him yeah, I mean, or stopped in traffic and hearing it on the radio in a car next to me. That was incredible. And when it's happening to you for the first time, it's surreal. When it happens again, you're a little more used to it. You're, um, I guess you're more aware of the star maker machinery and chart positioning and, and all of that. You're more seasoned, but the first time it's this psychedelic acid trip. It really is. It's so weird. And your life is changing because everyone's all up in your business and, um,
1: you know, <laughs> and you said you, you're as an introvert, wasn't all great. I guess there were, were there some times you just wanted to hide from all the publicity you were
4: suddenly getting? I, of course, I missed my friends and my family and I, I longed for meaningful conversation instead of the same questions. Um, and it it's so repetitive you are in this tour bubble of a van or a tour bus or a plane and I'm with my beloveds, my band um, thank God and you're just going all over the world and you keep playing the same songs and I definitely tried to make it fresh for myself we would change the set list and Sometimes I'd come out in a pink wig and sing La Vie en Rose or something, and just to make it interesting. Right. But it's very repetitive, and and you can see why people become casualties of the music business. It's um, at some point when it becomes so repetitive, you think, God, I could be making shoes or donuts. It feels a little uh, factory-like, and you know this very thing that you have loved—that is music—is becoming something you hate. (laughs) You know? (laughs) But honestly, I think that it was never the music that, the music itself, like that precious hour on stage. All the shit that you're living through, you have to love that hour on stage because you are sitting in airports and doing endless interviews for that one hour on stage. And that's sacred, and I loved my band where playing music together since we were nineteen. Um, I think it was more the loss of anonymity and the you know, the intrusion. You're you know, in the bathroom stall in a women's room and someone's waiting outside for an autograph, that kind of thing or back in the day, this is pre nine eleven, it might leak out what flight you're on and they would you know, folks would meet you right, right. at the gate, right, right as you're stepping off the plane and be haranguing you with papers for autographs from the moment you're walking off the gate to your car trust me I only had a brief moment I didn't you know I didn't experience the level of fame that so many do but it was enough for me to not like it I guess
1: did you guys talk about this in class uh, Kristen Uh, Paula I I know specifically about uh, voice and writing but it sounds like this may have come up when you guys were talking to some, some of these overall career type angles
3: Um, we definitely talked about how, I guess, fame can sort of, like, mess with your, with your mind, and and I think Paula's main message throughout the class was to just stay true to yourself, so we did briefly talk about it. I think that we, we look at Paula as, uh, as such a mentor, um, we forget that she's, you know, a Grammy Award winner and that she's, you know, she had huge, huge hits, and, um, yeah, because we just we just look at her as our teacher, as our mentor, as a, sort of a motherly figure, even. Um, and you know, she would like hold our hands. She would give us hugs. So I think I think that her main her main point of the class was no matter what you do, whether you do decide to become a pop writer, and it sounds like sometimes she's like, I don't really like pop music, but I think she she really does if you're writing it from an authentic place. Right. Um, and I think that was the main. The main point of the class so if you do achieve fame or if you decide to go a completely different route that's not mainstream that you just do what feels right for you
1: that was the whole lilith fair era paula did you feel real uh, camaraderie on tour and being with so many of those uh, artists at that time that i suppose we're having uh, maybe in some ways unexpected hits uh, along with yours uh, lisa loeb and sarah mclaughlin suddenly having hits uh, so many other acts at that at that time
4: it's a wonderful time in music looking back on it and there were even more independent radio stations then, so the playlist was more diversified. It was a, it was a great time to be in one's 20s. In, I was living in New York City. I was in my 20s in the 90s in New York City, and it was explosive and wonderful. Willis uh, Fair was a zeitgeist born out of just some of the great music that happened to be... Made by female artists. And those crowds at Lilith Fair were truly awesome. It felt like maybe the original spirit of Woodstock, like peace and love, man. <laughs> it was beautiful. Right. And every time we played, we'd donate to local women's shelters and present them with a check. And that felt amazing to be making a difference in each community as we went. Whether the artists were female or male, some of them, you know, I connected with more deeply than others some i didn't really connect with at all it just um but the music was good music was really good then i was happy to be part of it so open up your morning light and say a little prayer for I you know that if we are to stay alive and see the peace in every
1: Let me ask you, Paula, about your other huge pop hit. I I, I guess probably less surprising that it became a hit because it just—it was more typical uh, pop radio type hit. I Don't Want to Wait. Can you take us behind the creation and inspiration of that song?
4: I felt my grandfather was going to die, and he did. And I wrote this song. I was writing this song with him and my grandmother woven in it right before he died. And then after... So this song really was for him. So if you listen to the lyrics, you know he's in the war of '44. He comes home with shrapnel in his skin, and it's a look at my grandfather and his relationship to my grandmother. They kind of had an unhappy marriage in their later years, and and we now know that he probably had PTSD from being in World War II. So you know, we were told not to touch Grandpa's legs or don't surprise Grandpa. Um, but there were no diagnoses, you know, psychologically for those things then. And, um, and I was thinking about him a lot because he was leaving the planet and I was thinking about his effect on my father and that effect on me and how I was really hoping not to make some of those mistakes being passed down from generation to generation. And I wanted to break free from that chain that I wanted to live an examined life before it was over, really. So I guess that was my attempt to, to express some of those thoughts, and they ended up coming out in a very catchy way, <laughs> because I do love a an anthemic chorus.
1: And then the whole Dawson's Creek tie-in, the song is going to just last forever. Oh, yeah. Right? In some ways, just because came and of that. How, how they crazy came and was took that? The
4: song, it was such a big thing. Dawson's Creek was so much bigger than me. So people tend to think of it as the theme songs of Dawson's Creek as opposed to Cole's songs. So it became so big. And that's when I was taking a break from the music business too, and that whole thing bloomed. And I had my daughter. I took about an eight-year hiatus from the music business to kind of reset and have Sky. And Sky had asthma too, so I had to take care of her. I couldn't work even though I missed it and I wanted it. I just needed time away so when I came back it was a really different music business it was like pre and post internet
1: your new album started as a Kickstarter project right
4: that's right and that's increasingly the reality for all kinds of musicians and honestly I think it's much more functional and you have a lot more creative control over your music I I like it very much I thank you very much I like it very much it's clean it's functional I can um, retain the masters and make creative decisions. So I'm happy with it. And I like my direct contact with my beautiful fan folk. Like, they're just fantastic. I don't take them for granted. Taking eight years off from the music business is like a near-death experience in pop music, you know. Who's going to be there on the other side? And that's when, you know, all of your uh, taking chances, all of your desire to change. Like, I went from this fire to amen, and that was a big change, and a lot of people couldn't wrap their head around it, but I was influenced by uh, social, political, spiritual writers, and I wanted to write something in that vein. Even hip-hop was, like, a lot of hip-hop was moving in that direction, and and I was criticized for doing that. You know, a white female singer-songwriter rapping or being influenced and talking about spirituality or social movement that's that was just they wanted to keep me in some box and I'm I'm not going to be in a box I change and so I shed some fans but I the ones that know me from Harbinger and from you know they they love me for the change they are with me on the journey so they were there for me on the other side of the hiatus it's a smaller fan base but I'm really free and I can do what I want I my career is interesting. It's rich and satisfying, and I can do what I want now. I'm not sitting down in a corporate atmosphere, being asked when, um, you know, what quarter is my album going to be released in, and they're going to be disappointed if I'm not double platinum. Or, and they're talking about golf more than they are music. Frankly, I'm I'm really happy with the new model that is music business as long as you stay connected to your fan base. Maybe
1: one of my favorite details of your career that, that I actually didn't remember. But uh, you're from Rockport, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm from just south of Boston And Braintree. I, I, if this is true on Wikipedia, you sang the national anthem at Game 6 of the NBA Finals. In 2008, the Celtics won the title over the Lakers that <laughs> night. So you're a real good luck charm for for the Celtics.
4: <laughs> that was wonderful, yeah.
3: Gary gets made fun of for being a Boston sports fan here in New York all the time.
1: <laughs> I had to tout that one. <laughs> all right, uh, Paula. The new album is uh, Ballads. August eleventh, that comes out. Any any favorite song on the new album, or are you just uh, love this whole project? As you said, it's taking you back to your to your jazz roots in, in a lot of ways.
4: Well, I love Naïma. That's a John Coltrane, and I love Ode to Billy Joe, which is the Bobby Gentry tune. And that'll be, um, my next kind of teaser single coming out July 7th, Ode to Billy Joe, which, again, Bobby Gentry, man, self-produced, female, she won Best New Artist. I relate to her a lot. Didn't, she was an introvert, didn't like the music business, and disappeared for a while. And, uh, she wrote this amazing song called Ode to Billy Joe. It's another story. So that, that'll, um, be my next, Kind of teaser song, and "Naima" by Coltrane. Those could be my favorites. And oh, and my one and only love. I just love that song so much.
1: Well, congratulations, Paula, on uh, 20 years. Hey, no, thank you for your
4: support. All right, take care, everyone.
1: Thanks to Apollo Cole for coming here uh, on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast with Kristen, our intern, as well. And uh, it was – I actually remember, Trevor, before uh, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, she had another hit, a song sort of locally uh, in Boston. Uh, it was called I Am So Ordinary. Really uh, insightful singer-songwriter, just a storytelling-type song. It's, it's worth uh, checking out if you don't know it. But uh, I knew that song ahead of time, so when Where Have All the Cowboys Gone it probably became – the first hit uh, that people uh, knew on a large scale by Paula, uh, you know, that song uh, was the breakthrough for most people. I, I at least knew that she was talented, and I was excited to see her uh, have such a big hit with uh, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone.
2: Yeah, I mean, she was definitely, uh, I mean, I can tell in the interview, she was really warm, and and for somebody who really, you know, wasn't fame crazy or or, or going after it, it's, I mean, it is awesome to see that it still paid off for her and that her peers recognized her as well, winning that Grammy for Best New Artist um, of 1997. And I, I mean, also nominated, I think for all the big four awards. So, um, her, her peers really took to her very well. Obviously the public did as well. And it's, it's glad to see, you know, that, you know, that she, she's happy that it happened. It's great for her that it happened, but you know, she's. She just lives her life she, from yeah, now she, yeah. on. It's just you know, hey, something I just did. You she, know? That's what Kristen was saying.
1: She's oh, uh, she, she's uh, Mama Paula to us. She's she's our professor. And, you know, some students uh, maybe uh, you know didn't live through when the song was such a hit. But seems like she's she's happy to have had that moment where these songs were big. But also happy to kind of gotten out of what she was kind of talking about the machine of of touring. How huh? she said it could have been making shoes. kind of kind of sad to hear that uh, in some cases it's there's just so much uh, repetition to, to being an artist. You think it's all glamour, but. Obviously, a lot of work. We know that, but uh, sometimes it just uh, can be a little
2: overwhelming for certain people. Uh, yeah, and one thing that in particular I thought that was interesting that she noted was, you know, even though she acknowledged that her moment wasn't sort of this multi-decade expansion, like say someone like Madonna or something, um, even as suffocating and sort of torturous as that was for her, I mean, that's even without social media and all that sort of you know pressure to be on twenty-four-seven. So you can really imagine, you know, you take what she had. And you add, you know, all the sort of new um, technologies that you have to be actively involved in every minute of every step of the way. You're always potentially going to get recorded. It'll be out there in two seconds. Right. And now you can see sort of why, you know, the Beavers and and Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez and all of them had to take breaks for so long because it's just. You know, I mean the pressure on these kids is enormous.
1: Right. But hey, she sounds happy. So that's that's the best thing about it. She sounds like she is certainly in a great place.
2: Yeah, I mean for sure. I mean not, you know, not bitter, not, you know, I where are the rest of my hits just you know, I mean almost like looking, you know, looking in an optimistic way that, you know, hey, she got lucky that she even was out there and right. got this and, and it paid off, so. Yeah. In uh,
1: 1997, this is just about when email was starting.
2: Yeah, the oh, everyone had their AOLs and the, their hot mails coming you through. You get those
1: CDs and, that would come in the mail. You'd have AOL for however long the sample, a thirty day trial or like whatever. That, yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, twenty years ago, nineteen ninety seven. Let's continue on. Uh, we're looking at the top forty hits on the Billboard Hot One Hundred this week in nineteen ninety seven. Let's pick up at number twenty.
4: Everybody, put your hands together.
1: Uh, looking back on the Billboard Hot 100 this week 20 years ago Cupid by 112 They're coming up again here on the content. Cupid, okay, nice uh, Savage Garden, number 19 I Want You Before they were known for uh, their ballads uh, I Knew I Loved You in 2000 Truly Madly Deeply uh, 1998 I Want You was their first hit Up tempo hit Got to number four So that was, that was their first hit That's a little Aussie, uh, Aussie invasion over there uh, Monica, number 18 For You I Will Space Jam
2: Yes, yes yeah, that's a great that's a great tune for Monica. Um top ten hit for Monica, uh, big hit for her as well from the Space Jam soundtrack. Interesting too because it really sort of does that thing that a lot of soundtrack singles in the nineties did. It really bridged the link between her first album, uh a little more on the rowdy urban urban side, if you want to call it that, uh Miss Thang, and what will be her next album coming out the next year with The Boy's Mind. The Boy's Mind would be on that, Angel of Mind. So definitely um, You know, at this time Monica's like, turning 18, so she's really, you know, becoming an adult, growing into her own person, and this is a great ballad that shows her off.
1: Right. A, a year later at this time, summer 1998, she'd be number one with The Boy's Mind. Yeah. Uh, here's a song that uh, came back. This it, is so 90s that the song would be remade this way. It was Hard to Say I'm Sorry by As Yet featuring Peter Cetera. So it had been a huge uh, hit for Chicago in the 80s and uh, he left the band not on the best terms back in the 80s so uh, in the late 90s he was actually re-recording some Chicago songs because they wouldn't give him permission for the masters of the original ones so he wanted to put out uh, some of those songs again so he re-recorded them and because it was the 90s it made sense to they get with the vocal R&B groups that's how you got as yet featuring uh, Peter Cetera brought the song back to the top 10 and he'd uh, team with them again they then uh, remade after this, uh, You're the Inspiration,
2: another Chicago hit from the 80s. You know, shame that he, that it had to come that way, but also, I mean, nice for as yet, you know, sort of getting a nice little silver lining I don't think anyone could have expected in their career either.
1: And uh, number 16, Smile by Scarface featuring Tupac and Johnny P. One of the deeper
2: uh, Tupac cuts? Um, I mean, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not one of Tupac's best note songs just because he's not really – the main artist on it, obviously. Um, I mean, Scarface, you know, had his moment there as well. I mean, the whole, really, that whole label at the time, um, doing some big things. As we know, hip hop was running the charts, and it's not obviously just the bad, the bad boy East Coast side, but we got some love for uh, West Coast as well. I hear
0: the call, it's 6 a.m. I feel so far from
3: where I've been I've got my age I won't be held responsible She fell in love in the first place
4: sins, we won't miss be-
2: Okay, um, we'll keep on climbing here uh, up to the top fifteen songs, flashing back to this week in nineteen ninety seven. Coming in at number fifteen, we have Jewel. Jewel's "You Were Meant for Me." So uh, the song had been number two, sliding back down to number fifteen this week again. Um, we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier with Paula Cole that Lilith Fair era Jewel up there with one of the, you know one of the folksy singer songwriters making her big splash at this time too. We'll move on to number 14 this week, uh, The Verve Pipe with The Freshman.
1: Not to be confused with The Verve and Bittersweet Symphony, also a hit in that same kind of
2: time. Well, Verve was the word. Grease was the word in the, in the 70s. Verve is the word in the 90s. Keep keep it keep it alive. All right, moving on to uh, 13, we got Third Eye Blind, Semi-Charmed Life, which, of course, uh, I mean, even as the sound tech over there, can Kate can attest that she's <laughs> – you know that's one of those the sort of staple songs that is very 90s, very just very alt centric. That everyone who was an alt fan at the time, just one of those kind of iconic songs at the time. All right, moving on to number twelve. Uh, we have not heard from a country song in a while, so now is as good time as ever to pick one up. How about Tim McGraw's "It's Your Love" with? Soon, are they
1: married Yeah, no, they had just been uh, married in late
2: 1996. That would be with Faith Hill, so probably the, maybe their first recording as husband and wife? It was. It was uh, their first of – so they've had
1: six charted duets. This was the first one, a huge number one country hit. Uh, all six of them have hit the top ten on the country chart, and uh, – even now, 20 years later, they're they're actually on the chart still together with that sixth uh, top 10 country a duet together. Speak to a Girl was a, a number six hit back in April. And, still on Hot Country Sonics now.
2: Oh, And they also tour together. Um, they're on their, their Soul to Soul tour that started back in April. So, I mean, this is a husband and wife who are, you know, it's ride or die. They're all in.
1: And, yeah, flashing back at 20 years, the first hit. So that uh, kind of gives you a perspective on that. And and how about this, Trevor? If, if no Tim McGraw, maybe... There's no Taylor Swift, at least her first hit, called Tim McGraw, which would be in 2006. But maybe a young Taylor Swift who was seven years old at the time. She turned eight in late 1989, was being influenced by this very song.
2: Well, maybe. I mean, maybe with no Faith Hill, because, you know, Taylor always said that Faith and Shania and the women of country are inspiration. So maybe without Faith, then she would never really pay attention to Tim. Right. And maybe that could have, maybe it would have been called Garth Brooks instead. All right, we'll move one uh, one spot up from the Lovebirds there. Coming in at number 11, we got Changing Faces with Ghetto U.T., a nice little sort of kiss-off R&B ballad of the times. I just like the wordplay, Ghetto U.T. I mean, I don't know who well, who wrote this song. Oh, my gosh. Right? <laughs> I should have known. The, the 90s chameleon of songwriting himself. It's a Robert Kelly track. Robert Kelly written, written and produced. See, that's the thing is most people don't know. You know R. Kelly, very you know prolific producer and and songwriter, of just not for his own records. But I mean, the the first Aaliyah album was basically all R. Kelly. Um, you've seen some things with various artists in the '90s. Um, I mean, obviously this song, Maxwell's fortunate. You know R. Kelly is Michael Jackson's. You Are not alone. My, yeah, of course. Yeah, how could I forget Michael Jackson? Um, some other you know huge stars out there as well. So again, another R. Kelly written and produced track right there. And you hear the um, harmonies in the production and that.
1: Uh, song uh, just just a little bit before uh beyonce and destiny's child would really start a run of hits that's now 20 years strong but you you hear that sound those those r&b girl groups of the 90s that's the sound right
2: there yeah yeah i mean i was gonna bring that up too like that's a huge time for you know the the vogues of the world the swvs i mean probably for every one that you do mention there's probably five of those out there that you forget about i mean also in this time uh, escape has been out for a little while divine coming the next year right. lately about to be another hot 100 number one so um i mean again this fits right in that mold like i said you hear the harmonies you hear the the i mean the production it's it's right of its time
1: all right we're up to the top 10 this week 1997 20 years ago let's say get into the top 10 with actually two pretty historic top 10s uh, at number 10 and number nine Into the top 10 this week, 20 years ago on the Billboard Hot 100. So at number 10 was Backstreet Boys, Quit Playing Games With My Heart. Uh, number 9, Robin, Do You Know What It Takes. Those songs were up uh, number 13 to number 10, and number 12 to number 9. First
2: top 10 for the Backstreet Boys on the Hot 100, 20 years ago this week. I mean, when that sound moves up, the Backstreet Boys are, you know, really here to stay at this point. Here they come with, obviously, the, the album had been out for a little while overseas, but making their U.S. Splash. So Backstreet Boys, first top ten. Uh, Robins, first top ten. Do You Know What It Takes?
1: And both written by Max Martin. His first two top tens on the Hot 100. Got them the same week, this week, 20 years ago. Both of those songs, 20 years later now. He has 22 number ones on the Hot 100. Third most all time after a Paul McCartney, 32. And 26 for John Lennon. And he was hitting the top ten for the first time this week, 1997.
2: And leave it to Max Martin, of course, to do it not once but twice in the same week. That just really shows how uh, prolific a hitmaker he has become. And funny that he has, I mean, those two acts, people, I guess, probably would not expect those two. Backstreet Boys, probably people would guess, like, okay, sure, that's that probably was one of Max Martin's first hits. But, you know, Robin has taken on sort of this this um, other end of the spectrum where sort of your pop purists and, and maybe people who aren't, you know just listening to top 40 or whatever really appreciate robin and get into her she's
1: really appreciated now 20 years later on on a level that maybe she wasn't even
2: then yeah i mean i think i think as people look back especially like i mean her influence obviously you can you can see going forward um and people sort of give her more credit yeah in retrospect as a trailblazer but that's just you know, kind of crazy that max martin was you know, really in a way behind getting some of that momentum out there, too.
1: Yeah, so a historic week uh, for for Max Martin. And both those acts, and 20 years later, too, uh, they're both doing really well. Backstreet Boys 2017 just got their first number one on the country chart with the Florida-Georgia line. Yeah, who would have guessed that? And uh, Robin, there was a remake earlier this year by uh, Callum Scott of Dancing on My Own. Uh, more recent uh, Robin hit uh, from this decade, but it, again, shows her influence. Still lasting. Uh, moving on, uh, number eight was a debut, Sean Colvin. Sunny came home right there in that that same uh, lane with Jewel, Paula Cole, another great uh, little Fair hit. Uh, Sean Colvin's been around for, for a long time. This was uh, her huge pop breakthrough. She's had uh, really good songs before and after. She's worked with so many other uh, singer-songwriters. But uh, this was her big pop hit, a great, great lasting hit.
2: Yeah, also um, a huge critics' favorite, The Next Year Taken Home record and song of the the Grammys. So another win for the singer-songwriters out there. And how about at number
1: seven, uh, wasn't wannabe by the Spice Girls. Say you'll be there. Their second hit. Now we know we're back in nineteen ninety seven.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean this is that yeah, that that solidifies it for sure. Um I mean obviously you know, Spice Girls taken over. I mean, again, the influence and the um the celebration that they get all this time later is I mean, it's enormous, even right. when they, you know, they, they rarely reunite really now for, for anything. But when they do, it's always a big deal. It's kind of incredible to see how much their influence and their celebration is still felt around the world to this day. I mean, you ask anybody who's in that target age group for their audience— um I mean they you know, I'm sure they all saw the movie and they saw right. Spice World, they had the albums, they you know, everything was Spice Girls. It was related. a combination just, of, crazy.
1: Of, of, of catchy music and girl power. That was a, it's a really good combination
2: for a young female fan base. Yeah, I mean I guess it really wasn't an act, you know, who really celebrated girl power like that. And I mean the fact that they were, you know, a mixed group of different races and different hairstyles and different attitudes and everything. I mean, you know, any girl could be a spice girl. And I think that was very important to them and you know I mean on a marketing front probably a huge thing
1: and at number six uh, I belong to you every time I see your face by Ro we it, it, it,
0: always always and ready to
4: bring
2: five of the hot 100 this week in 1997 we got five songs left to go let's kick things off with the song in fifth place this week we got look into my eyes from batman and robin by bone thugs and harmony again the year before uh you know they had that smash hit across the board with the crossroads um huge hit number one on the hot 100 for eight weeks I mean, uh, scores him a Grammy as well. A tribute to Eazy E, who had passed away um, a few years before, not not too too recently, but uh, of complications with with AIDS. Um, so really, and you know, their mentor and who they looked up to for a long time. So that tribute to come out, obviously, you know, piggybacking off the success of that, and of course, got to give a shout out to the 1997 film that it comes from, Batman and Robin. This is yes, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. Uh, if you remember that George Clooney is Batman, I mean, just just what a what a cast of characters, you know.
1: <laughs> and at number four, it's so, how you know we're flashing back so long. The song is now back in a commercial. Return of the Mac, Mark Morrison.
2: All right, and another song that is definitely of this era as well. If you grew up during this time, you know this song for sure. It is "Mbop" by Hanson, the trio of Zach and Taylor and Isaac, taking over the chart. Uh, in 1997, the song had backtracked a little bit um, to this week down to number three, but still, I mean, one of those infectious songs that is just, I mean, the most teeny bopper kind of fun sing-along song. They were actually in our office, too, as well, um, right. a little while ago, and they kind of shared a, a cool insight about this song, because everyone kind of remembers it as kind of this little bouncy sort of, you know, you know, you, I, I would have sung it, but I'm not going to sing anymore for Gary. Um But they actually wrote it as, like, a pretty, like, somber kind of tune. And some of the lyrics, you don't always hear the lyrics. You hear just a
1: happy, bouncy pop song. But, yeah, some of the lyrics are about how relationships don't last. In an mbop, they're gone is actually what it means. But uh, it was uh, turned into an up-tempo song, the Dust Brothers uh, producers turn into to such a, a hit, and you know people remember this this one song. The Hanson had a, a few other chart hits, but uh, they they seem like the nicest guys. They they just love being musicians. So even if they haven't had a whole bunch of other hits since then, that they, they still uh, tour a lot. They have a really passionate fan base still after all these years. So that's great to see.
2: Yeah, and I mean it's incredible, especially back in their home state, of Oklahoma. And I mean think about it; these guys are it's been twenty years, but I mean the guys are barely like in their thirties right. at this point. I mean they're st- they're still so young. Even when you you think that they'd be, you know, sort of ancient out there. But, um, I mean, great to see that they're still, they're still striding on. And one thing I always like, like to see and that I at least appreciate is, you know, I know it's hard for artists when you have sort of that one song that everyone is, is gravitating towards and they want to hear it at concert. I mean, it's nice that they don't really shy away from that or, you know, some artists will refuse to kind of play right, their song right. or they hate to be associated with it. You know, I mean, I think that's awesome that they – they, they embrace what made them, you know, famous.
1: And interesting that we had uh, back at number 28, uh, Bee Gees, Song Alone. At number three, uh, Mbop, Hansen, two brother trios from kind of different eras, both in the top 40 at the same time this week. Certainly different
2: kind of different eras. Certainly different eras. <laughs> A little mixing of from, from the 60s uh, on to today. Right? I mean, we're Gen X, millennialing Okay. All right. All right, Gary. All right. Um, <laughs> moving on to number two. Um, this is just one of those. The great titles, you got to say, number two song in 1997 this week, Bitch,
1: by Meredith Brooks. See, I was working radio at the time. We weren't allowed to say it on the adult uh, Top 40 radio station. We could play it. Do you have to say B, you couldn't, Meredith you could, Brooks song? There's, there's Meredith Brooks. Or Meredith Brooks is coming. She could say it. She was the artist. But it just it sounded a little harsh if if, if a DJ yeah. just uh, said the title. So yeah, it's one of those radio rules, uh, trying to keep it family friendly, but didn't stop the song from becoming a number two hit. Great song.
2: Yeah, definitely one of those songs that, you know, in the post, Alanis Morse said, Jagged Little Pill Vein. I think a lot of the uh, women singer-songwriters out there really definitely flexing their muscles, feeling like they can take on more, you know, aggressive topics, aggressive language, not have to censor themselves and sort of fit into this. You know, I guess either the Celine, Whitney, Mariah box at the time. I mean, yeah, this was part this of that opened a lane. Yeah, yeah
1: it, it was part of the Lilith Fair, uh, the, the whole feel. Even if this wasn't as folky, this is much more of an in your face pop alternative song. Certainly fit, and uh, that helped become such a big hit. All
2: right, and uh, moving on from Meredith Brooks to the number one song of this week, uh, July twelfth, nineteen ninety seven, number one song on the Hot one hundred, coming in for five weeks straight at number one. Uh, We mentioned him a little bit earlier. Notorious B.I.G. Not a Notorious B.I.G. song, but would not have been possible without him. Check it out. So, yes, that is Puff Daddy and Faith Evans' I'll Be Missing You, uh, also featuring 112, who we saw earlier on the chart as well. So, one of the all-time great tribute songs uh, specifically crafted after Biggie's murder earlier in the year, 1997. Puff wanted to pay tribute in some way. This is how he did it. And, of course, people also remember probably that iconic VMAs performance that he did yeah. uh, a little later in the year. Also bringing out Sting from the police because the song, you know, heavily, heavily inspired by Every Breath You Take from 1983.
1: So uh, back at number 25, we heard uh, Puff Daddy with Can't Nobody Hold Me Down which I reworked Matthew Wilder's Break My Stride. This song, uh, number one, reworked another 80s song, The Police, uh, you just mentioned. Here's something I think that gets lost in terms of uh, just uh, chart uh, fun facts. So uh, the original Every Breath You Take by The Police was number one for eight weeks in summer 1983. And then in summer 1997, I'll Be Missing You, it really uh, takes so much of that song, was number one for 11 weeks. In some ways, you could make the argument that Every Breath You Take and slash I'll be missing you uh, with a total of 19 weeks at number one, eight for the original, 11 for this version, uh, sort of the longest reigning number one song of all time. We know the record is, is Mariah and Boys to Men with One Sweet Day for 16. But if you take these two songs together because it's built on the same melody. 19 weeks at number one for for both of those together.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I think it's also a credit to Puff Daddy. I know people sometimes rip on him because, you know, he samples too much or he just kind of, you know, doesn't, he's not original and like that. But it's, you know, it's, it is, there's talent in being able to take so many songs that so many people know and, you know, adding a spin, a twist. I mean, even be able to rap over it just in general. So, um, I mean, you can't be, you know, you can't be a novice producer and make it work.
1: And I'm sorry, you know that uh, time uh, moves forward. Uh, these two Puff Daddy songs we're talking about sampled 80s hits. And now it's common we see songs uh, sampled from the 90s. Uh, you know, Camila uh, Cabellos, a new song, samples Genie in a Bottle.
2: Which like, is I mean, barely a 90s song which in it itself. Barely, I was going to
1: say, it's actually two years after what we're flashing back to uh, 97. That was a hit in 1999. So samples continue. It just now they've moved forward a decade or so and that means you think about it that songs that are out now maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now are going to come back sampled in future hits by people that maybe haven't even been born yet.
2: Yeah, I mean you you wonder what you know, someone going to sample um I mean, I guess we think of certain songs like what could be sampled? Like I would not be surprised if somebody sampled sort of the the robotic background of Single Ladies. Like I feel like that little like the the, whatever beat it's built off that the dream and Tricky Stewart made, like that, feels like something that people would really grab onto. Oh, uh, two, uh, two uh,
1: recent uh, hits that uh, sample uh, stuff even more recent. Uh, Ed Sheeran is through writing credits. Ed Sheeran and No Scrubs from nineteen ninety nine, Shape of You, and having to
2: having a sneak you know Tiny and Shakespeare and Candy on there to to get their to get their to uh, get their checks.
1: And here's a two thousands one Chainsmokers closer. Wound up uh, giving uh, credit uh, to uh, The Fray for Over My Head. That's from 2006. So here we go. In 2017, we do have a, a song that uh, samples a 2006
2: hit. I guess some people kind of wonder, are we going to like, is the machine going to catch up too fast and we sampling things from last year this year? And... All right. So there it is. Uh, 1997, flashing back 20 years this week.
1: And number one, uh, Puff Daddy, Faith Evans, featuring 112. I'll be missing you. So uh, next week... Uh, I don't know if I should say we're going to go forward or we're going to go back to, to 2007.
2: Uh, we'll, we'll just arrive there, however we get there.
1: All right. Uh, next week, we'll count down the top 40 on the Hot 100 uh, in mid-July 2007 on the Billboard uh, Chart podcast. And our guest is going to be Joe Riccatelli, who heads up uh, promotion at RCA Records uh, at the time. He was uh, promoting a song that Pink had at the time, uh, You and Your Hand. And he's going to give us a whole uh, story about that, how Pink had kind of hit a little lull in her career. And that song, uh, after a pretty long ride, a lot of promotion, a lot of, a lot of, it uh, took a lot of work for the song to uh, hit uh, hit number one on uh, the pop songs chart. And her career has been uh, in overdrive ever since.
2: So, yeah, we'll pick up with the pink renaissance of 2007. Uh, we're also going to talk to Joe about some other high-profile acts on RCA. So we'll talk about some uh, 90s superstars and what they're up to today in Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears. And we'll also uh, flash forward to some recent acts as well, see what's happening with Zayn, and um, maybe even get some news on Kesha. So Ready. be sure to tune in for that.
1: I think we should uh, close, Trevor, with uh, the song that was at number 41, just outside the top 40 this week in 1997.
2: Uh, is oh God. what
1: a choice gary let, <laughs> let him know uh, espn presents the jock jam in case we weren't 1997 enough through the entire top 40 here's one more
0: Gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble.